the long night is finally over. Now the long day of talking about the long night can begin. I am EW's Darren Franich, talking to our man in Westeros, James Hibbard, all about the new episode of Game of Thrones. This is EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. So much to discuss this week. First of all, introducing the all-new Toyota RAV4 XSE Hybrid with sport-tuned suspension, advanced hybrid technology, and relentless horsepower, not unlike what the Dothraki used to have. It's ready to blow past the competition. And since our most powerful RAV4 is a hybrid, it's leaving all expectations in its wake. RAV4's revolutionized style and luxurious cabin give you the comfort and confidence to take over. So if it's power you're after, and who's not after power, RAV4 XSE Hybrid's the answer. Visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details. James, I so often call you our man in Westeros as if you are, in fact, a correspondent from a war. You were literally the correspondent on the set for the filming of this episode. You've been kind of living with it for a lot longer than we have. Um, but give me your, your broad thoughts about watching this episode last night. What really kind of stuck out to you? Well, first of all, I mean, after 13 months, I'm finally... I'm so glad I can finally say the words Arya kills the Night King because that's been ping-ponging around in my brain every time people talk about Arya, every time talk, people talk about Maisie, every time people talk about this battle. And I just thought that was such an exciting uh, ending that they had planned. But yeah, uh, I got to spend two weeks on the, on the set of Game of Thrones in season eight and uh, a lot of it was for the battle. Um, it was, it was, you know, as we talked about in the cover story, it was brutal i mean it was it was cold it was wet it was muddy it was dark it was uh it was it was tough and it just you know by the time you hit like three o'clock in the morning and you're out there in this cold field and um you know and you're all bundled up and you're you, you know it's just you you get to a point where this level of exhaustion sets in that uh that bleeds through to the reality of the Thrones world. I mean, you, you get these actors that have been working so hard and, uh, and doing take after take after take in these conditions. And that desperation, I think we fought, we got to see on camera sometimes you know, in those scenes with like, uh, Gwendolyn Christie as, as Brienne and, and Jamie, and just the, especially near the end of, of that shoot where, where you can just see the way, you know, how tired and exhausted and weary and hopeless everybody kind of feels. That's kind of how they felt on the set. You know, so I, I thought that they they really did an incredible job pulling off what is you know, arguably the most ambitious battle ever staged. Um, it's this it, this 82 minute episode uh, where you have you have an aerial dragon battle, you have like a field battle, you have like like trench stuff, you have like castle ramparts and you know siege things, you have crypt horror. <laughs> you know, it's it's like I, I really need to watch the episode again because even knowing some of the things that were coming that I feel like there's so much in there and so many little details in there that you're going to miss the first time around. Well, and James, one of the things I liked about uh, your your awesome recap, uh, which uh, you somehow managed to write up while publishing a lot of other great posts uh, and interviews that uh, people should read, um, you kind of mentioned uh, that there are so many different kinds of battles within this battle, that there is the kind of, I think you actually referenced like Dragon Riders of Pern, the sort of grandeur of that aerial uh, dragon fight and that like extreme long shot when you just saw the two dragons against the moonlight, cross cut with with the more familiar two armies kind of marching towards each other battle sequence, fading into the full-on uh, Last of Us survival horror of Arya kind of crawling through that the, the corridors that all were full of uh, the dead um, hunting her. thought that was interesting. We'll say, James, uh, all of those kinds of battles could have used, like, Maybe a couple more lights. Uh, I, I am definitely someone who, in watching this episode and feeling like there were a lot of visuals that I thought director Miguel Sapochnik really delivered on, in general, the kind of chaos cinema of filming it all with, you know, it was it was so nice whenever Beric Dondarrion was on screen, just because then I, I was guaranteed that like the, the light from his sword would illuminate everything. Just for me, that was a bit of a step down from something like Battle of the Bastards, which among, it's a 
many other incredible traits, just the kind of bleached out sun shining down on, you know, mountains of bodies, uh, aesthetic of it really kind of um, stuck with me. But you you kind of mentioned in, in your recap, you had some kind of broader thoughts about the whole darkness question uh, to do with this episode. Yeah, I mean, this was a big you know, big debate on Twitter. There's a lot of stories afterward getting into the darkness of the episode. Uh, I, I put some thoughts in the recap. I, I really kind of struggled to figure out what I was going to say about it because I feel like it's kind of a tough, it's a tricky thing because clearly the episode is intended to be dark. It's intended to be disorientating because that's what the characters are going through. Um, in the script, um, you know, I mean, clearly the episode's called The Long Night. Uh, the sections that people were having particular trouble with in the script, there, it was called the fog of war. And <laughs> so, you, you know, so you're, you're trying to put the audience in, in, you know, from the perspective of the characters, you know, in this darkness and, and disorientation. So you're trying to balance what you're going for aesthetically with the practicality of making sure people can follow what's going on. Uh, so, so I think that there were parts like that people had the most problem with, like when they were on the the dragons and there's there's the aerial battle where it's supposed to be confusing because the characters are supposed to be confused. Uh, and if you have a newer big TV in a dark room with like a really good cable or internet provider that doesn't compress the signal too much because that's a big deal with with signal compression right it's like you get these artifacts and, and darkness levels tend to get just completely crushed it can look great but if any of those things are not ideal then you're probably going to have a problem following it and i think that raises a question it's like it, it, it raises a question about the ex, the the accessibility of art you know you know is it okay to make something that's really only you know, hugely comprehensible on optimal playback conditions versus typical playback conditions. You know, is it okay to, to, to calibrate this just for, for the more higher end, you know, setups and, and, and perfect situations. Um, and that's, you know, I found myself wishing that they had, you know, like you, sir, you know, dialed it back a few degrees, you know, calibrate it, that they could have made it, a bit more accessible for more fans because when you get this many comments um, about something like you know darkness levels, uh, clearly you know, with with a little bit of tweaking you could have had a lot more fans enjoying it a lot more. Um, and and I and I wonder if they had known it was going to get this reaction before whether they would have stuck to their guns and kept it the way it is or if they would have done something different. And and I yeah. and I don't know what they would have done on that, but well, I, I, yeah, I I tend to be a little platform agnostic. I mean, like I have a TV set that is like good. I mean, it's not like a top of the line TV set, but given what I paid for it, I have to assume that if I had the complaint, then a lot of other people did as well. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think what frustrated me a little bit was the feeling that you had these moments that were just kind of, you know, you kind of saying that it's meant to be incoherent. I'm always, I'm not that receptive to that argument. I always kind of think, well, there's there's ways to show that characters are experiencing incoherence without That's being fair. incoherent yourself. But um, you had a great interview with uh, the director, Miguel Sapochnik, where he kind of specifically referenced um, a couple of pretty major Disney franchises as an example of kind of what he didn't want to do with this episode. And I thought it was interesting, coming the same week as Avengers Endgame, which I will not spoil at all except to say um, that's a movie that like I enjoyed fine but when it came to big battle stuff very often it's just kind of big battle stuff yeah. as opposed to um, right at the start of The Long Night I thought that Sapochnik just found a couple different strategies of kind of microscoping what the characters were going through first in that kind of long shot that opened the episode where you were kind of following almost stream of consciousness style all the characters from inside of Winterfell to outside of Winterfell finally up into the sky and then of course in the shot in really what I think is the visual of the episode as far as just being so surprising and so demolishing when you had the Dothraki and their swords on fire having this riders of Rohan going into Pelennor Fields moment of 
victory swooning, and then just from the distance, seeing all those lights go out. I, I thought that was an example of how, um, you know, that that to me was, was the real meat of the episode, was moments like that, as opposed to some of the later stuff when it was just kind of heads being chopped off and, and, and you know, the, the zombies climbing on walls in a sort of World War Z-esque fashion. I'm glad that he kind of found those moments, because th- that felt very unique for what they were going for with with this episode, and, I, 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 I think. And that felt very much like Miguel Sapochnik style, too, is to create this this really clear visual moment that, uh, that that captures a certain amount of battle horror. And yeah, it, and it was just beautifully shot. And you had, you know, Melisandre arriving like like the, the lone horseman of the apocalypse, you know, beforehand. <laughs> Um, it, it, it does make you think, and I saw some people commenting on this online. It was just like, but wait, why would you send your Dothraki cavalry out to meet the army of the dead? Shouldn't you all be, you know, huddled back at the castle? Let them come to you. Keep your forces together. I mean, it was a battle tactics wise. It wasn't a very bright idea to just you know send them all, you know, and then let's see what happens. So, but at the same time. It's like if you were creating that episode, it's like, wow, that would look really cool, <laughs> you know. So it's, yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's like, yeah. So it's like you sacrifice a little bit of of logic for 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 that amazing uh, visual storytelling moment. Yeah, I in general, there were questions about strategy, like you know, why not just have lots and lots of those fire trenches? But I, I, I you know. I kind of accepted last week, okay, this is a golden snitch situation. Um, You know, this is not a battle in a manner that we have seen before. The whole goal of this is to kill one specific person. So in that sense, you know, my frustrations with some of the questions around the strategy kind of wave crashed against what moments worked really well and, you know, what actually looked good on screen. But let's kind of dig in a little bit here, James. Um, This was an episode where we lost a lot of people perhaps less major characters than we might have thought. Um, Were there exits that were especially um, emotional for you? Or in turn, were there there moments where you thought someone was definitely going to die and they didn't? Like, I I thought Sam was dead 10 times over the course (laughs) of that episode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there was a, yeah, there's that moment that I thought was really powerful when John is going through the castle and he sees... Sam being overrun basically and he just keeps going and to me that was one of my favorite parts of the episode because we all know that under any other circumstances John would run to help his best friend but that he just keeps going just spoke to the like the direness and awfulness of of the situation and and how large the stakes were that he couldn't even you know spare a moment to, to get involved in that he has had to had to keep going for for, for the Night King, I, I thought all the deaths were, were very well staged, and a lot of them were very much paying off the character in 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 a in in a very character driven way. It's a, I think you know Sir Jorah had the optimal death for his character. He died prote- protecting his queen one last time. Um, you know Theon had the optimal death for his character. He 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 sacrificed himself to 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 protect Bran, and that moment where Bran you know, softens his three-eyed raven harshness for a moment and tells Theon, you know, you're a good man. Uh, That's something that Theon's been kind of wanting to hear or wanting to know about himself for so long. And so so I I found that very, very touching too. Um, With, you you know, know, not to ping back and forth around too much, but one thing more I wanted to say about the darkness thing, um, there was this amazingly... Uh, dumb comment made by an AT&T executive when they took over HBO where they said, uh, you know, they said, you know, we should make Game of Thrones episodes only 20 minutes long because that way they'd be easier to play on phones. Uh, Which, you know, if you're a phone company taking over a network, that's pretty much the dumbest thing you could potentially say and and be quoted on. So, I and, and I do think you know, that all content doesn't need to be perfect for all devices, that there is something to be said for, you know, the, you know, this is a show that has a lot of visual detail, a lot of, you know, audio detail too. Like the sound design on Game of Thrones is terrific. So I, I, I don't have a problem with Thrones being a show that 
that should be watched on the you know the biggest screen possible the best you know playback possible but at the same time yeah you know you wish you know in retrospect that they could go in and kind of like tweak this and tweak that and kind of make it a little bit more accessible a little bit broader you know it's it's funny James this is kind of clearly on your mind and it's really on my mind too because I think one thing I struggled with with this episode in general is, on one hand, I sort of agree with you. It's frustrating to me when, from a top-down executive level, there's this idea of we need this to be the most uh, munchable version of content that you can create, which is obviously not what the creators of Game of Thrones want to do. That said, um, you know... As much as I think that this kind of battle sequence is somewhat unique in TV history, I've been thinking a lot in this whole first half of the season about the story that kind of most mirrors this trilogy of Game of Thrones episodes. I'm talking, of course, about Henry V, the Shakespeare play that I've never read nor seen performed on stage, but I have seen the two movie versions of it, which are both quite good, directed by Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh. And those are both just kind of equivalent stories about, like, there's a long lead up to a battle, there's a night before the battle starts, and then the battle happens, and especially in the Branagh version, it's another sort of super muddy, gritty, in-your-face kind of medieval battle. And, you know, those movies might seem somewhat old-fashioned to people today, but they're both very well lit. And so I I just sort of think that, like, you know, as much as I, I support the project of Game of Thrones being as big as possible. There's different kinds of bigness and there's different kinds of cinematic. And, you know, even in this episode, um, I I really appreciated the moments when Sapochnik's camera would really focus in on individual people. He had a really interesting uh, kind of conversation in your interview with him about this idea of what makes these battle scenes work is when you're kind of looking at it through one person's perspective. And one of the challenges of this episode is that there's like 20 people. And, you know, I think different people got different grace points. Um, you know, the one moment where Brienne and Jamie were kind of fighting back to back was something that really stood out to me as being defining for those characters in a way that you kind of didn't need a whole lot else with them. Um, but then there were just moments of the dead are kind of flocking over the walls and Grey Worm seems to be dying, but not really. And Sam seems to be dying and not really. And, you know, from the grander scope, it seems impossible that anyone would survive so then it's weird that all our fan favorites do survive. That's kind of why, again, when I think about this episode and I think about, um, you know, what would I want to watch on a biggest screen possible, it really does kind of come back around to that moment you were just talking about where John is going through the courtyard. And it's almost like the camera is following him in this very third-person video game style where it almost seems to be moving in tandem with him. And I have to imagine that getting the timing of that right <laughs> seems so absurdly difficult and no wonder it it took you know three weeks you know uh, just to film that Um, or you know I know we're kind of ping-ponging around a lot, but the episode did that too. The moment where we really zeroed in on Arya and her kind of moving through the castle, that's the stuff that I think just really jumps out to me as being more effective. And I guess that that's kind of why I understand, I sort of side with the complaints about the episode where it's like, you know, even if it were brighter, there are just a lot of moments of swinging and flooding and... Um, you know, seemingly dying, but then not actually dying. And, you know, the, the stuff that stands out to you is the, like, Leanna Mormont stuff, where it's like, okay, we're, we're focusing in on a character who we recognize, who's having a whole story just in that brief moment with her. When Liana, um saw the giant come in, there was this rising action, the giant killing everyone in its path, her kind of having this incredible end of an Ed Zwick movie, I'm just going to run up on a suicide run uh, attack Um, and then I think actually boy trigger warning for everyone we actually heard her body crunch before she stabbed you can hear the giant (laughs) crushing her little bones it's so sad you know she's he's like holding it looks like it looks for a moment like oh my god are we about to see this giant bite Leanna Mormont's head off and you know that's I mean that's sort of what you feel like in that I thought moment, it was be worse. and yeah. then she, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, sticks him with the point in. We we um, actually interviewed uh, Bella Ramsey, um, uh, the actress who plays um, Liana, 
And what's cool about that character is that character is only supposed to be in one scene. Dan and David, uh, showrunners of Game of Thrones, they originally just wrote one scene for her. Uh, I think it was uh, season six. Uh, where John and Sansa go to uh, enlist the support of Bear Island. And she was such a scene stealer that just kept giving her more and more more stuff to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and then, you know, I, we interviewed her and asked her, you know, were you disappointed your story didn't go further? And she was like, no, I, I, I only, you know, she was like, for my character, the thing I wanted was to either end up on the Iron Throne or to die a cool death. So, you know, <laughs> I got what I wanted. And, um, yeah, so, so she, she, yeah, she, she was terrific. And, uh, and that was fun because it's like, here you have the, the, the tiniest soldier taking out the Night King's biggest soldier in that moment. Yeah, after reading your great interview with her, James, I fell down the rabbit hole a little bit because she she sort of mentioned that she'd been like auditioning for the BFG before Game of Thrones, and I realized that she is actually on a children's TV show, uh, something about a witch. I I, I don't worst have it witch. here in front of me. Yeah, she's on the Worst Witch, which like I'm just kind of imagining if you're some parent or hopefully not some kid who's experienced her on that. Like this is a deeply destructive <laughs> moment for your childhood, but. It's such a great moment in the show. Um, jumping a little uh, specifically here, James, while all the battle was going on on the ground, we were sort of going between the air and the subterranean crypt. Um, the stuff in the crypt, I thought, was kind of interesting, sort of a callback to an episode that I know we both really love in Blackwater when you had those great moments mm -hmm. of Sansa and Cersei hanging out together. Here, different scenario, different Lannister to hang out with, but still a lot of fun with Sansa. How did you feel about the stuff kind of going on down in the place where everyone briefly thought they were safe before discovering they were actually less safe than anyone else in Winterfell? Yeah, I don't think anyone <laughs> watching the episode so it really thought the crypts were safe. I, that was that sort of became a bit of a meme uh, after last week's episode when we were repeatedly <laughs> told that the place with all the dead bodies will be fine. Um, it, and when one thought I, I had, I mean, I mean, Lyanna Stark has to be one of those those zombies, right? And Rickon and maybe headless Ned Stark. <laughs> and I, I think one thing I kept wondering is like, are we actually going to see potentially that is, is that in the back, you know, will some fan find some freeze frame somewhere where they'll be able to tell by what somebody's wearing that one of these, you know, legacy Starks is, is, is one of the zombies crawling through. Um, I, I thought it was a really sweet scene with uh, Tyrion and uh, Sansa, and just you know, there's still some there, there's there's uh, still a fair amount of affection there, and obviously Tyrion uh, seems like you know he would still be he, he would still be down you know if you want to like you know try that <laughs> you know this arranged marriage thing you know neither of us want it but maybe it could still work. And <laughs> and that sense from Sansa that's just uh, no because of. Be, because of uh, Daenerys, you know, she's she's still. I, I found it. You, uh, I don't know. It was like really Sansa. You you know, Daenerys is up there on a dragon right now, risking her life to save you, and you're still kind of slamming her while hiding in the crypt. I'm glad you bring this up, James, because I in the last couple episodes. I've been very pro Sansa all over the place in, in terms of the schematic of the show and just in general in terms of my enjoyment of this season so far. I've really appreciated the fact that while everyone else has kind of been in this let's set aside old differences and join up together to fight the good fight um, mission statement, she has been th thinking forward, I, I think. She is kind of looking ahead to what happens if we win. I want to put something out in the world just because uh, usually when I say something is going to happen, i.e. Beric Dondarrion will be the last person left alive, it doesn't happen. And what I've thought about, I don't want to have happen. But I'm a little concerned that Sansa's one note is sort of being anti-Dragon Queen. And I, I, I worry if the rest of the season is just sort of her gradually coming around to to an alliance with Danny, then that starts to feel kind of like, oh, so is this all Sansa does in the last few seasons of Game of Thrones is disagree with someone and then ultimately agree with them. But I, I, I did like 
the note of discord that w- was going on down in the crypt um, between her, you kind of had the, you know, Danny Partisan immediately stand up and say, like, you know, not cool. Like, she's literally up there fighting for us. This is all the stuff that I think, now that we are past what we thought would be the final act of the show, James, and into the actual final act, it's interesting to kind of see, as I think you kind of called, th- these chasms kind of forming between the characters. Um, now, we didn't lose anyone down in the crypt, right? We, we saw a lot of other people die, but uh, Sansa, Tyrion, the spider, Gilly, all our favorites are okay down there. So, so arguably, if you were a name character, the crypt was the best place to be compared to the, the bloodshed going on. So, James, in the crypt perhaps less fatal than uh, it could have been insofar as all of our name characters did survive. Um, I guess, James, in general, I'm just intrigued to know, you being on set, were there moments in this episode that we saw that you kind of recall seeing or um, moments in the epic weeks-long shoot of this episode that uh, when you were there really kind of stuck out to you? Well, one thing I think that would surprise people was how much was shot indoors, because a lot of the the work that was like in the trench or in the battlefield were at, was actually in this giant hangar that was filled with with, with smoke and fog, and like for instance, you know the moment that uh, Sam uh, and Dolores Ed you know, were on the battlefield, you know, I saw that part being shot, and that was indoors, and uh, you know, a lot of fire trench stuff uh, that was indoors and they would they would have like the doors closed for 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 like a half hour while shooting and then they'd open the doors and all this smoke would pour out like they were doing some epic Westeros hotboxing in there or something and all this poor <laughs> cast and crew would like pull like go outside and like take deep breaths to like you know get some fresh air and then they would all go back in and fill it full of smoke again and lock them in there for like another hour of filming. It, it was rough. I mean, so even the indoor things were 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 tough. And there's one part that I, I don't think I'll ever forget. Um, the scene with the zombies, uh, with the whites, when they're lined up along the fire trench and the Night King commands them to start building that kind of bridge, that body bridge across. Uh, you know, they did that with practical effects. Uh, to watch awesome. these guys get suited up to be set on fire and all that goes into that, a lot goes into that and they get all psyched up and they go out there and to see people standing in front of fire and then walk into it and face plant forward and to see multiple <laughs> people do that is really disturbing to watch because you're watching this and there's some primal party that's just like, this is really wrong. You know, the, you know this feels like disaster happening in front of me right now. And then there's this moment when they're down there and then they yell cut and then they run in with, with the, with the fire extinguishers and everything and, and then, then put them out. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough, brave thing to like, to like sign up for, for that. Um, let's see some other, uh, things that, uh, that I don't think I've written about before. Um, the, uh, you know, Kit was bummed because he, he, about the battle, because he had to spend so much time on, on the dragon. You know, mo- most people would love to be inside a studio instead of being out in those conditions, but he'd rather be in the cold rain swinging a sword with his friends than be in a studio by himself on a mechanical, bold device while being pelted with wind and fake snow and reacting to things that aren't there. So, so, so he, he, was, he was a bit bummed. He had to spend so much of that um, uh, in in Dragon Time, which is which is tough for the actors because you're being thrown around on this thing like all day long. You have like this massive fan blowing wind in your face. You have all this like snow and debris that they're also blowing in your face, and you're trying to pretend like you're you're chasing the Night King, and you're doing that day after day for 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 pretty long hours. Um, uh, you would see Arya. Um, getting to kill the, uh, the night King. That was something that when they read in the writer's room, uh, there was this huge cheer, uh, that went up when that happened. And, uh, Kit, even Kit thought it was going to be him. He's like, I th- thought it was going to be me, you know, <laughs> you know, but, uh, he was, he was very much in support of it being, uh, uh, uh amazing. Uh, in fact, if, if you haven't read, um, 
the story on our site right now, we have an interview with Basie Williams where she really talks a, you know, a lot about her whole thought process about when she first found out she was killing the Night King, how her thoughts changed about it. Um, she uh, At one point, she was worried that people wouldn't accept it, that, that uh, are they going to be disappointed that it's that it's her. I'm like, no, people are going to, people are going to love it. And at one point it was funny. She went to her boyfriend and told him what happens. And her boyfriend's like, yeah, should be John though. Really? Shouldn't it? (laughs) It's just like exactly what you would probably hear from a significant other, you know? So, but then she eventually came around to the idea of it. Um, especially after shooting the, the Melisandre scene, you know, there's that, that prophecy. And someone was asking me earlier because they weren't, they didn't remember that. Um, that was from season three. Melisandre runs into uh, Arya and tells her, "You know, I see a lot of darkness in you. Uh, I think it was, I think it was brown eyes, green eyes, uh, brown eyes, blue eyes, green eyes. Uh, eyes will shut forever." And so the idea is that she's been leading up to this the the entire time uh, the, to to complete that that mission. And the the other person that obviously had a mission, uh, Beric. I mean, Beric. He's been brought back from the dead six times, not seven. Yeah, poor Beric. I kind of thought he was going to live just because it seemed so inevitable that he would die. But sometimes when it's inevitable, it's for a reason. I did think it was interesting. What you're saying now, James, I'm kind of seeing the stitching of destiny narratives together. Beric had to keep being brought back so he could rescue Arya. So then she could go and kind of complete the larger red woman, red god uh, narrative of the show, which is all kind of interesting. I did think that um, you had kind of mentioned in your recap this idea that you're constantly seeing John get closer and closer to the Night King. Specifically, that narrative kind of begins... After John crash lands, he sees the Night King. There are multiple armies of dead people lying on the ground all around them, one-on-one. Then the Night King does his raise people from the dead. Uh, Are you not entertained? Can you dig it? Hand movement, (laughs) which then is bringing them back to life. Really great visual that stuck out for me, that slow rise of the dead as John is running closer and closer. And then throughout the end of the episode... Just the the closer he seems to get, the further away he gets from the Night King. Mm. I thought that was handled really, really well. And it is interesting, we, we've talked about this on the show, that there were a lot of theories about Arya killing the Night King. So maybe that is less surprising than if Dolorous Ed had killed the Night King. But I do still think there's something really interesting at work there to build up the John versus demon monster to end all time rivalry for so long. And then ultimately do take that kind of left turn. I I thought that was interesting. And I I think it kind of spoke to how this show is lousy with people who have, have, decade-long uh, origin stories now, you know? Or rather, not origin stories, but these decade-long um, narratives that are kind of reaching their their uh, climax now. So I thought that was an interesting left turn for sure. But poor poor, poor Beric. I, I just, you know, maybe when it seems so obvious that someone is going to die, it then makes you sort of want to see them actually uh, pull through in the end. But we lost him. Um, you, we kind of mentioned earlier, we lost Ed. I think he was the first major name character yeah to go to to go in the episode which i mean listen if you've been like the seventh banana in two game of thrones battle episodes or three game of thrones battle episodes i kind of lose track of how many he was in i think that you probably had a good run on the show he's he's been around since (laughs) since early in in season one and i wonder if anybody picked him in those you know those those you know first character death pools that are, that are out there because i think that's arguably the first uh you know consistent your regular name actor to 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 go out um yeah and and Barrick, i couldn't help but wonder from Barrick's perspective because he doesn't know that arya kills the night king so all he knows is the lord of light brought him back six times to save a girl in a hallway, you know, <laughs> that's the, you know, for, from his perspective, it's like, okay, 
So that was it, you know. You know, you know I, I thought I was going to get to do more with my flaming sword. I just like the idea that, like, like, the red god works in very indirect ways. You know, the red god's kind of all about. Listen, there are some gods that are all storms and lightning and stuff. Like, I, I'm going to just gradually set wheels in motion. So one of my operatives will do something that'll then help somebody else. James, quick break here to talk about some unexpected twists and turns. With unexpected twists and turns around every corner, the all-new Toyota Rav Four Limited delivers a Advanced tech, refined style, available dynamic torque vectoring all-wheel drive, and multi-terrain select. So it's prepared for pretty much anything in its path. Visit toyota.com slash rav4 for more details. James, I want to kind of zero in a little bit here on the final act of the episode when you kind of had everyone at their most precipitous point. Um, We had had the sort of epic dragon on dragon fight scene um, that I think really the climax moment of all of that was Danny is facing down the night King. That's a moment where it gets to the core of the very idea of the show, A Song of Ice and Fire. Right now, you literally have the two polar opposites of the show for such a long run of time. Danny, the Dragon Queen, Valyria, fire coursing through her veins, versus the Night King. Literally, as he moves forward, there is an ice shelf moving through the entirety of Westeros. She tries to burn him. That doesn't work. At that point, at that point, I think really the part of the episode that made me and my wife like jump and like hold each other, the dead start flocking all over her dragon. And that's, I, I don't know why, that was the part where I was like, oh no, oh no, yeah. oh no. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought that, that was extremely effective. I, I thought that whole sequence was, was, was really effective. Um, because whenever uh, Daenerys says Dracarys, you know that she's won, right? That's her magic word. That's her Shazam. You know, she says that and it's over for whoever she's facing over and over again ever since uh, like end of season two. Yeah, with with, with the warlock. Um, so, you know, for her to, to, to get him right in her sights and to, you know, have that moment and blast him and then for the for the flames to clear... And then have the Night King there with this, like, and he gives this little hint of a smile, this little, like, ha, ha, you thought Dragonfire would work, and it didn't. Um, I, I thought that was just, I thought, I thought that was terrific. I thought that was terrific. I, I, was, I, uh, I thought that was a really good play on your expectations. And did what this episode does really well, which is continue to stack hopelessness, to just more suspense, more hopelessness, more there's no way they're going to pull this off. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and as that hopelessness is being stacked, I'm, I'm liking this sort of quantification of hopelessness stacks because it was definitely pretty high, uh, towards the end of the episode, Danny and Jorah are sort of holding off what seems like an army of the dead. Everyone at this point is holding off an army of the dead. And again, if there's any kind of minor complaint about the episode, there is a point that you kind of mentioned in your recap that when in the kind of master shots, you're seeing a thousand dead people flocking somewhere, your brain does sort of go to that uncanny valley place of okay two people i'm not sure could hold off all of them but i did really like seeing theon have one last big moment of tearing down what looked like an entire cavalcade of uh, whites as he was protecting bran you know theon and jorah both i thought their deaths were kind of interesting in the context of the broader show those are both characters i think a lot of people would have thought would have died a really long time ago and but they both as you said they kind of died doing what seemed like their job uh you know there was nothing really despondent about their deaths insofar as they sort of felt like they at least died doing the right thing but i really do want to call out alfie allen who has most of the last five years on the show has been called upon to play just slow, painful, if he's not being tortured literally, he's being tortured emotionally moments. And I really just thought that his quiet in this episode and his just general um, 
uh, non-flashy version of heroism that really stuck with me right down to his sort of last attempt to run up and take down the Night King, which of course we all knew was not going to go very well because as much as, as us Greyjoys would have liked it, nobody nobody thought a Greyjoy was going to end the war <laughs> with the Night King. It was never going to go down uh, that way. But uh, how did you feel about that exit? Because this is another day one character that we lost here. Man, now now I'm wanting to see Theon kill the Night King, and just, I mean, that, I mean, that would have been the real shock if if if, if Theon Greyjoy took him down, and uh, and uh, everyone carried him around on, on their shoulders, you know, you know, like 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 after a football game. Um, yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I thought that you know it was very moving, and Alfie Allen's performance was was terrific. I like that they sort of they evolved his look to be like like early Theon again. It's like as he sort of got back to himself, they they made his physical appearance more like his old self as well. Um, with uh with with Sir Jorah, I mean, you know, man, that guy, uh he's you know, survived gladiatorial combat. He's survived betraying Daenerys, which is, you know, a pretty risky thing. He survived grayscale. <laughs> he survived battles. Uh, again, like as you say, he made it way further along than I think anyone expected. Um, and one thing I liked about his death was how Daenerys reacted. I mean, she like really broke down and wept. And I don't think we have seen her. I don't think I don't know if we've seen her cry since like season one. You know, you know with uh, with Khal Drogo of all things. And so, you know, and this was like, I don't think we've ever heard her cry like this. And I, th- I thought that that was good for for her character because we see her being so, so formal and so kind of rigid and and harsh and to remind us that there's still that humanity in her, um, I think was important. But I, I want to circle back to a, a point that a moment that you point out, and this was another moment that really worked for me, was when all the whites started, cl- you know, clamoring all over Drogon. I mean, there's this this whole d- death by a thousand, like like zombie fleas that that the that the, that the dragons trying to like dog, you know, like Labrador Retriever, like trying to shake off um, in that moment, and. And then, of course, Danny too is up there, and you're like, "Wait, is is Drogon going to be killed? Wait, is Danny going to be killed?" I mean, you really have several moments there where you genuinely don't know what's going to happen next, and it just seems like everything is completely going to hell. Yeah, well, and what's happening there, also, James, I think, is a real talent for showing scale. Um, because in this episode where you have these different kinds of battles happening, the worst thing that can happen is if you start to feel like they're all happening in different worlds. You know, if it's like, okay, like the dragons are big and they're fighting in this way and the army of the dead is smaller and they're fighting here. And I just thought that that was such a breakthrough moment of really vividly feeling these characters who, you know, mostly I think were created via CGI or kind of by, by, via CGI with a combination of, of practical effects um, and just you know the way that uh, as Drogon was like flying up you know every moment you were kind of like oh he doesn't look that good like you know the, they really kind of managed to show you how we've seen this dragon rise up in a really grand and, and effective way yeah. this was not one of those times and I thought that was just a, a good bit of tension to kind of add in um, you know at a moment when lots of other stuff was happening elsewhere yeah. in the castle and it's, and it's not clear if the dragon are okay right i mean because the way it ended it's like are they fine are they injured are they you know so we don't really know that and i don't think we even checked in on ghost either though of course the tv rule is unless you see a character die on camera you know they're they're not dead yeah, th- 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 this was another piece of just me not being able to see things. I, I fully thought one of the dragons was dead, but I- I've been reading up a little bit, and it seems as if that is not the case. Um, and in that sense, it's interesting to think about this episode in the context of what is to come uh, in the future, because, I mean, I'm I'm done, I think, with this phase of the show. I'm kind of ready to get back to um, the larger Game of Thrones story where there are different sides and you're not quite sure who who you're rooting for and you're not entirely sure 
um, which side is on the side of right. I'm not sure that's quite the case. I mean, I, I'm here for people who think that Cersei is the hero of the show, but I'm not sure you can quite say that. <laughs> but certainly, it's interesting to be kind of moving back into this phase of the show where if you're Sansa and you're very focused on resource management and soldier numbers, you're kind of running the statistics after this battle. We just lost all our Dothraki, I, I, I think, and a pretty sizable chunk of the army. And down south, there's a huge mercenary army um, with golden armor that has not been dented by a, by a battle against uh, Armageddon zombies. Yeah. And so I think yeah. that's, you know, again, again, thinking about what you were saying, the hopelessness stacks have not been uh, pushed over just right. because uh, w- one battle has been won here. Yeah. yeah, Sansa definitely plays Game of Thrones as if she's playing like Age of Empires, right? I mean, she, she, she's <laughs> all about like making sure the grain silos are full and, 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 and making sure the farm is doing well. You know, you know, she's, you know she's all about the resource you know, she's, you know, management. She, James, James, she is able to settle Catan in six moves or less. It's, it's really astonishing, and, and I've seen it happen. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, but James, I mean, like, you know, uh, you know, in all seriousness, the end of this episode is both the end of this story and the beginning of the end. It, it's, it's the end of the end of this story and the beginning of the end of, of another story. What a weird way of saying that. Um, but how, how, how did you kind of feel about what's to come based on what we saw in the last few minutes of, of the episode? It, it didn't feel like it was a great moment of triumph, even if there was the happiness of just being able to survive to see the dawn. Yeah. What's, what's funny is we had that, that prediction podcast at the end of season seven back when uh you know i knew nothing about season eight and most of the stuff we got wrong but (laughs) but one thing that was right is is uh predicted that you know that they would deal with the the supernatural threat first and then it would shift to uh the iron throne and i was really excited and i think i mentioned this last time about the structure of the season, which I just thought was super smart, is that you have that first episode that you know brings everybody back, you know, you know, does the table setting, John finds out. Second episode, all calm before the storm, all spending time with characters, um, and Danny finds out. Third episode, all battle. You know, the, you know, the big battle finally happens, and then the next three. You have three supersized episodes dealing with the war for the Iron Throne. And so much of this second half of the season has been black boxed. I mean, the way it's been presented up until now, it's like the story of Game of Thrones final season um, is, is, uh, is everybody comes to Winterfell and then they battle the army of the dead. So the rest of this is all unknown territory. And it's almost like you're getting like two seasons in one. It's, it's, it's like you have the story that you expected and there's all this other whole other trilogy of, of mini movies uh, coming after it um, where I think the big question is right now, everybody's together. Everybody triumphed. They're all victorious uh, happy for maybe 90 seconds or so. <laughs> and then what happens, you know, then do these relationships, you know, are these relationships now stronger and better and more positive coming out of that? Or do the old rivalries and old factions, do they now have the space to flourish now that there's no longer that common enemy there? And, uh, and two, you know, what's going on down in King's Landing? Um, uh, Cersei's been, uh, you know, hoping that the that the army of the dead wipes out her her foes. Army of dead did wipe out a lot. I mean, how much did this battle help Cersei? In other words, you know, now that you have like that Dothraki charge, you know, and all all the whites killing so many people, you know, what are the numbers at this point in terms of you know Daenerys versus versus Cersei? Are they kind of now even with? presumably two surviving dragons, are they now kind of on an even playing field in, in this war between, you know, Cer- you know, Cersei getting the golden company and uh, Danny's forces being devastated. And well, one thing I wonder about just thinking about the current power layout of the show is we have an army down South that is amassed and is in perfect condition 
we have, let's say, one army, although it's really two armies kind of mashed together up north that are both in not so good condition. And if I think about the chasm that is widest in the show right now, it's between the Lady of Winterfell and the self-declared Queen of the Seven Kingdoms. And I guess I find myself wondering, would someone who views themselves as the person in charge of keeping the North safe, in this case Sansa, just kind of say, we're not going south. Like, we have been decimated once, twice, thrice over in the last few years by invasion, by the Battle of the Bastards, which ended the invasion, by this other invasion. Um, you know, it just, you know, why, why would we, you know, we could theoretically, I, I'm assuming that not all the Northmen are dead, we could hold position up here at that sort of point in the middle of the country where it becomes the North. Why would we go south right now when we are just not able to even maintain, you know, again, we've 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 lost. <laughs> like like we sort of thought it was bad when the only Mormont who was left to run things was the child, and she was great. But like you know, that seemed like it was a pretty dire situation to be in. Now she's gone too. <laughs> like who's who's left now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, if yeah, I mean, if you're uh, you know running Winterfell, it's 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 like how many people do you have to collect taxes from at this point? <laughs> You know, pro- <laughs> that's what I'm talking pro- pro- about, probably James. not much. You know, there, yeah. So. Back, back to the tax talk. Back to the tax talk. That's what's missing so far. Yeah, this yeah, season. really. I mean, <laughs> Westerosi um, tax rates. I mean, it's something but, that I've been very curious about. You know, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it's going to be really. I think it's going to be really fun talking through these next few episodes. I mentioned last week that with this episode, a big question for me was kind of going to be. Um, to what extent do the characters who seem to have grand destinies still have grand destinies after this episode is over with? And there's a little bit of the season five of The Walking Dead vibe here to the fact that all the people who seem like they should survive did survive. Um, but that also kind of then sets up the question of what do they do now? And, you know, I, I just think that's going to be those sorts of now that we don't have this thing to unify us, are we still unified? And obviously there are people who still really want to kill Cersei. Like, I, I don't think Arya is, is going to turn down a chance to go south, yeah. but you do kind yeah. of wonder about some of the I, other people I, who are up at Winterfell now. You know, I I would defend the 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 relatively low body count, partly because there's something that's not hugely satisfying about a character being killed by a zombie on the show. I mean, it, it's it's not as interesting as, as other ways that you can you know perish if it's like the machinations of other characters and so forth. So I so you know I, I sort of feel like they 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 it was sort of a calculated number of deaths that 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 feels like about right. And uh, you know, I also wonder you know what's Cersei's plan? I because I I I have a feeling that she has some contingency plan for if. If uh, you know, the forces up north survive, uh, I, I've, I've, I have a feeling that she's going to be stirring up some trouble. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and of course, you know, whatever she stirs up, this could theoretically mean that she has one fleet. But we all know that uh, the the Greyjoy fleet back home with Yara might also come into play, which is what we're all really excited about. Uh, James, we've talked a lot about some of the stuff that you've posted uh, just in the last uh, 10 hours uh, of nonstop publication of essential Game of Thrones pieces. I do want to shout out um, that literally right before we started recording, you posted a great interview with Carice Van Houten, who played Melisandre. One of my favorite interviews you've ever done because it involves her speaking in code at one point. And apparently the code name for Davos Seaworth is the banana. <laughs> well, it, it, it was it was this weird moment because we're sitting at, at the Fitzwilliam Hotel lobby and in Belfast and we're by like like a fireplace, which is perfect because it's 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 like there's a fire going and you're chatting with the red woman. And but these tourists kept kind of coming in kind of like hanging around and kind of lingering. And it's whenever you're doing a Game of Thrones interview and it's in a public place, you're super paranoid about being overheard. And you can't tell if people are just hanging out because they're just normal people hanging out who couldn't care less about you. Or if they're trying to kind of, you know, overhear and kind of eavesdrop and kind of recognize the person (laughs) that you're with as being famous. So, so what she did is something that I, I had never had anyone do is that she just kind of started 
using like fruit metaphors. Like like, for, like she started referring to herself as strawberry, uh, which makes sense, you know, okay, you know, but then she just kind of kept continuing it and trying to explain what she was saying in in you know different fruit related uh, terminology and, and instead of using any of, <laughs> of the names or events. And then she would throw it to me, expecting me to ans- to ask questions in fruit terminology. And I, you know, I've never taken an improv class. I'm terrible at that. So I'm like struggling to ask, like, how do I translate this into fruit? You know, <laughs> to, 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 like so that she can understand what I'm doing. And she's just like, she's like, this is fun. You should do more interviews like this. <laughs> James, when they teach, when they teach the class about you at future journalism schools, this this interview is going to be a whole segment. Like, like, be ready for anything. You never know. <laughs> just just when you think the hardest part is going to be literally getting sick by being uh, on a set, then you have to conduct an interview entirely via fruit code. <laughs> Um, but, uh, James, uh, you know, it's been really interesting kind of talking with you about this episode, especially since you were there on set for it. I definitely think that, um, just in terms of the scope of it all, uh, it's been pretty remarkable to get this kind of insight. Is there anything else that people should be looking out for you as far as uh, Thrones publications between now and the mysterious fourth episode coming up next week? Um, yeah, we are going to have a story, uh, interviewing actor Ian Glenn, who plays Sir Jorah. Um, R.I.P. And uh, I think we're going to have an interview with the actor who plays Dolores Ed as well. And actually, I can talk about this because I think this is going to go up like right around the time this podcast goes live. And and this was, you know, a bit of a favorite because uh, I asked the showrunners why we didn't get any ice spiders. Um, which, which is, you know, a throwback to season one and old Dan telling that horrifying bedtime story to poor Bran about the long night and and the uh yeah how the the white walkers arrived on ice spiders as big as hounds so i asked uh showrunner dan weiss about it and he was like we talked about it for like 30 seconds and added ice spiders that sounds good it would look good on, on a like a heavy metal album cover but once they start moving, what does an ice spider look like? And probably doesn't look great. And yeah, and that goes back to a lot of their 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 efforts to try and keep things as realistic looking as possible. And in some ways, it's actually easier to make a fictional creature like a dragon look realistic because we don't have anything. We don't have like real life dragons running around to kind of compare them to mentally. Then when you take an existing creature and make it larger, which is one reason why we don't see, haven't seen more dire wolves is when you have like a super sized wolf, it looks like a super, like a wolf that's been enlarged. Um, we know that's not how big wolves are. So, so it, there's a little bit of uncanny valiness there. And, um, so yeah, so that's why we, we did end up getting the ice spiders. And by the way, you know, title long night, that's one thing we should talk about real quick. We actually tipped readers to this being the title a bit indirectly in our cover story because the crew was wearing jackets after filming the episode that had the words, I survived the long night on it. So the episode title has been kind of hiding in plain sight for months, um, and as fans know, this is also the title that George R. R. Martin wants to title the prequel. And yeah, I think, and he was, George R. R. Martin's been kind of frustrated sounding like, like, well, I don't know why they're not calling it that. That's what we're, we're thinking about calling it that. And HBO has not confirmed the title. And I suspect one reason they haven't is because this episode was called The Long Night. It's like if you're doing an episode in the final season of Game of Thrones called The Long Night, you don't announce a prequel series before that with that same title. That's just confusing. Um, Which doesn't mean that it might not be called that. But, you know, you you wouldn't want a cart before a horse there. And and announce that as one thing, and then have it be something else during the final season. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't even really connected that to the kind of pre well the conversation about the uh, prequel series. I think there's a better title than Long Night out there somewhere, but uh, that is interesting to think about because in the world of Westeros, that's a reference to something that happened centuries, millennia earlier, and now it's kind of being reutilized here as a title. Um, that's pretty interesting. I this this does sort of 
well, we'll talk about this more maybe when we hear more about the the prequel series. But that's kind of interesting to hear that sort of back and forth happening between the two shows. Um, James, that about wraps it up for us uh, on this week's episode of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. Everybody out there, uh, definitely dig into James's archive, which is just constantly much like the whites that kept on swarming over the wall and falling in the background of every shot in the last half of this episode. His his blog posts just keep on swarming higher and higher. Going to be a lot to check out in the lead up to next week's episode. If you want to tweet at us... Um, He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Definitely no shortage of things to discuss from this episode and minor little moments that stand out to you. We'd love to hear about them. Uh, We will be back next week. You can always find us wherever you find your podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Radio.com, on Spotify. Give us a rating. Give us a review. We're coming up on our last four episodes as Game of Thrones is coming up on its last three. We are going to be having a final epilogue episode where we look back on the whole experience and we want to make sure that we're doing our job as well as we possibly can and want to make sure that we're answering all the questions that you might have over the course of this season that wraps it up we'll see you next week everyone One final message, courage can be a powerful asset, which is why the all-new Toyota RAV4 Adventure Grade comes with standard, dynamic, torque-vectoring, all-wheel drive, and multi-terrain select, so you have the courage and confidence to roam over almost any terrain. Just visit toyota.com slash RAV4 for more details.